0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Joe DeVille, who's a lecturer in mobile work at Lancaster Uni, about his new book, which is published by Routledge in 2015, called Lived Economies of Default, Consumer Credit, Debt Collection, and the Capture of Affect. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, It's great to have you on. This uh, is a fascinating book uh, that talks to lots and lots of different things about um, how we live our lives in contemporary society, both in terms of the kind of everyday mundaneness of using credit cards and stuff like that, through to really big questions about how we theorise people's kind of emotions, their subjectivities, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I wonder if we could kick off by thinking about one of the words in the title, sure. Default. Yeah. So what is default? What does that term mean? And, and why uh, was it kind of important to the book? Um, so...
1: On the one hand, it's a technical term um, referring to the moment at which a creditor deems that a borrower has broken the terms of their credit agreement. Um, and I think for many years, it kind of stayed there as a as a technical term used within the industry and understood by people working in and around the industry. But I guess one of the reasons that it ended up in the title is that it's become um, something, a word that... Captures something about our age um, to a degree. Um, You know, speaking right now, on the cusp of uh, what, at a a moment when um, Greece is potentially on on the verge of default, or that's certainly something that's in the air. um, I think in many ways we're at a moment in which default or the threat of default has become not not the defining, but a defining um uh concept or a way a way of thinking about um our relations to to economies of, of all sorts. And and of course um it, all this this all I guess started with the sequence of defaults on um subprime mortgages um in the States. So I guess if if you trace some of the kind of um issues that we're experiencing in the in a variety of global economies um, these can be traced back to a series of, of defaults and um, overlaid with the constant threat um, of or default. And so that that was the kind of backdrop. Um, but I particularly am interested in consumer credit defaults. So these are people who are defaulting on their consumer credit um, debts. So these are debts on credit cards, on personal loans. These tend not to be secured on property. So we're not talking about um, default on, on home loans, which um, is something that hasn't really been investigated any in any in much depth.
0: Where, where did the interest in uh idea of default generally and then consumer credit come from was it something you were working on previously in your academic career or yeah so i mean this book kind of um comes to a degree
1: um out of my phd research though i've built on it quite a lot since then um and i started well before the um so-called crisis broke and i became interested in the proliferation of consumer credit which was being talked about to a degree at the time both academically and within um, popular discourse as a as a problem so there was a kind of to degree an awareness that there was this spread this ballooning amount of consumer credit um out there um <clears throat> uh, but one of the things that i felt was that it wasn't really being investigated um perhaps with enough nuance academically i mean there's some great sort of path defining texts out there people like george ritzer um, writing uh, about proliferation of credit and so forth. But no one, had, I think, had really looked in sufficient enough detail at some of the, the, the kind of real specificities um, of our daily interceptions with consumer credit. So that was, that was my starting point. And the first point my research was to go and speak to some debtors. I was particularly interested in people who are struggling with, with their with their debts and so with high levels of debt. Um, uh, and as soon as I went to speak to them, one of the things that you realise is the specific consequences of default, of um, having broken the terms of your credit agreement and what that effectively means is being subject to the incursions and um, solicitations of um, the debt collection industry, broadly defined to include both, I'll come on to this probably in more detail later, but external debt collectors and creditors themselves collecting on on outstanding debt. So you know when I was speaking to people um, our conversation was continually interrupted by by the ringing phone. People would take me round their homes, show me folders of bulging paper containing letters from debt collectors um, and that I guess led me to focus down specifically on this matter um, of default rather than just sort of generic over indebtedness. Um, I became specifically interested in, in the condition of um, of yeah, what happens when you when you break that this bond that you're meant to sort of treat with care um, purportedly um, with a creditor? What what actually happens, and um, what are some of the organisational processes that, are, that surrounded um, this this
0: uh, this particular component of the credit industry? Your way of kind of getting into that, uh, uh, framing that um, set of discussions that you've had with. With people, uh, both as you know, in the the jobs and um, on the receiving end of uh, kind of the credit industry, is through quite a variety of theoretical starting points. But I think two of the big ones uh, are science and technology studies and actor network theory. Um, and I wonder if you could say a bit about what they are and how they're relevant um, to the investigation in the book. Yeah,
1: so I mean, I think uh, the book is heavily influenced by a variety of approaches that come out of of those of science technology studies of active network theory so there's also a strand of economic sociology i think it's, I think it's been heavily influenced by that so there's a series of um, translations i guess you could call them it's appropriate enough in, in relation to that body of work um through which I, I draw on that work um and i'd say that's kind of one pole one important pole of the book um, and what I take from that work, and I do critically engage with it as well. But what I do take from that work um, is its attention on uh, on the material, and I guess on the mundane, um, and in my case within market settings, within or within and surrounding market settings, anyway. Um, and I think what that why that was really helpful for me was to to focus on the specific um makeup of these sets of encounters, encounters between effectively creditors on the one side and borrowers slash defaulters um, on the other, to look to be able to sort of trace some of the specific ways in which on the one hand a set of organizations were attempting to uh to manage to to um attach as I refer to it in the book, people to their um, credit products, through a specific set of technologies, a specific set of um, what I call devices. Um, these devices can be things as, mon- as mundane as a collections letter um, to uh, a particular collections script that somebody might use to a set of um, algorithmically informed um, analytical techniques which allow you to potentially categorise debtors in a certain way. Um, so I guess it's 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 that attention to the kind of to the to the mundane material composition of markets and the relationships between people and organisations that I think this this body of work um, uh, was help. That's why I guess that body of work was helpful to me in that respect. Although I guess where I critically uh, or have some sort of hesitations about some of this work is that on the one hand I think sometimes it accounts have been a little instrumental, a little clean I would say and that links to um, I guess my, the second kind of pole in the book which is, is affect theory um, which also has materiality at its core however the emphasis the kind of emphasis is less on the specific devices and more on um, on the body as a, a site of uh, as a material site and I guess what the book tries to do is to bring these two um, approaches into dialogue into fruitful dialogue not necessarily a synthesis by any means but to bring some of i guess you could call it the attention to Messy and embodied life, which I think affect theory is particularly good at detecting. You could call it to um, an SCS informed economic sociology, um, which some of your listeners may well be quite familiar with. This, but um, which um, I guess most most famously, or most um, uh, the most kind of um, prominent. Exponent of um, of, the, of a kind of STS informed economic sociology, someone like Michel Callon. So bringing bringing this kind of work to a kind of Callonian um, economic sociology.
0: Yeah, in in that body of work, they um, you see the kind of attention on a whole range of uh, different devices, things like shopping carts, yeah. as you know, making kind of transactions possible and, and stuff like this. And one of the things you do in in, in the first substantive chapter in the book is Um, to think through um, why it is people borrow, why these people uh, get credit by discussing the credit card. And I think that's an interesting uh, device perspective on what could be just the sort of, you know, fairly sort of standard sort of psychological explanation or, you know, kind of boring mainstream economics explanation. So I wonder if you could talk through how the device perspective on the credit card um, gives us a, a kind of a different perspective on, what drives people to borrow yeah sure so that the
1: yeah the, the first chapter in a way is a kind of it's an unusual chapter in the context of the book as a whole because most of the book isn't actually about uh the causal forces that drive people to borrow the, mo- the majority of the book is on what happens when borrowing becomes a problem but i kind of felt that i had to answer that question whenever i sort of introduced what I was researching to people, both academic and non-academic, the, the, the first question that people tend to ask is, oh, right, so is your book going to explain why people get into that? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which is fair enough. Um, and I, in some senses, I saw that question as a provocation to the kind of devices um, uh, approach because there were conventional answers to that. and there were, And these conventional answers aren't wrong. Necessarily, It's just that they're very well rehearsed um, and I think there is in some sense always a need to kind of come up these questions um, afresh. Um, so, of course, things like poverty, uh, money management skills, uh, the um, marketing of credit, um, the forming of certain subjectivities in certain ways, all play, these play, play a huge role in um, the reasons behind why people borrow. However, one of the things that I thought hadn't really been explored in much depth was the role of these mundane devices um, of consumer credit themselves, specifically um, payment cards and specifically the credit card. The credit card is interesting. It's kind of this symbol of consumer credit. So when you look at pretty much any academic and many popular books about about consumer credit, on the front you'll find uh, a credit card, and yet in these books you'll often find virtually no discussion of the credit card um, itself. Um, So I started to look into the credit card, look look into some of its history, and what you find is that this very mundane device, this thing that we have in our purses and wallets we often forget about, played a crucial role in the expansion of consumer credit and actually in in the acceleration um, of the consumer credit market, particularly in the US uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s, and then in the UK in the 1970s. Um, And what you specifically find is the credit card being seen as a device that could actually um, effectively tempt people into borrowing. So um, in the US... And then later in the UK, the, the initial approach of the, the the credit card industry was to effectively mail um, credit cards to people completely unsolicited. So they would just send people credit cards in the post um, to people who they thought thought might be made potential might be potential borrowers. Um, and in the US, in particular, this was done in, on a vast scale. There's there a period called the Great Credit Card Race where these cards are getting sent to to, to thousands of thousands of people. they to all kinds of peculiar things, being allegedly being sent to, to children, to to ex-cons, um, um, and this was huge. This was to to an extent about kind of market share, grabbing kind of a piece of the of the consumer credit party um, at the time. But there was more to it than that. Um, the consumer credit industry were um, um, called uh, uh, in front of a committee in Washington, um, where they Actually, in defence of this practice, produce experimental evidence of the fact that um, simply by putting a credit card in somebody's hand, as opposed to making them fill in an application form for consumer credit, um, you can experimentally demonstrate that people they'd be far more likely to borrow. So these, this kind of historical evidence provides a nice sort of um, demonstration of of the power of some of these mundane devices. These, these mundane devices don't just are just passive um, in our in our wallets and purses. They, in, in many ways, act as affordances, act as lures for us to. To, to borrow, to, to to engage with consumer credit, um, and a look at and so and the and second thing I guess is that the, the payment card industry are well are well aware of this. there's an ongoing, I guess, battle within the payment card industry to get us to transform um um our the way that we use payment cards um with the rise of contact and payment and so forth, uh, and in the various marketing for, for that surrounds this, you see quite explicitly. The way in which the specific materiality of payment devices is invoked as having direct and um, causal consequences. So these are some of the kind of things I look at in in, in the first chapter. Not to, as I say, negate some of these kind of uh, you could call them broader um, social forces, social and economic forces that drive and uh, consumer credit uptake, but to uh, provide a, an alternate way through some of those
0: debates. So the, the kind of Focus on, on market devices continues into the second chapter where you're thinking through, um, I suppose, what you said earlier, that moment of when one stops being a kind of a potential customer who might be you know, making money on interest payments and stuff and ends up uh, as a defaulting debtor yeah. um, who you know has to be sort of dealt with in, in various ways. And, and you look at letters. And telephone calls in the context as well as bringing um, effective theory in. and So I wonder if you could talk through what uh, the role of uh, things like letters and telephone calls are in moving defaulted debtors to repay.
1: Yeah so um, certainly in the UK and I imagine elsewhere there's this this, um, idea about debt collection that it involves the burly male debt collector coming to your door and knocking on the door and demanding repayment, potentially taking um, bits, you're taking a TV, taking whatever else he can get his hands on in, in repayment for debt. Uh, this is an uh, extremely niche part of the debt collection. The vast, vast majority of contemporary debt collection uh, work involves contact at a distance. And the two, I guess, the workhorses of um, contact at a distance in the debt collection industry... Um, are these two mundane technologies of the telephone call um, and the letter. Although it's increasingly sup- being supplemented by things like email um, and SMS. Yeah, that's um, good. But still, I'd say it still is, it's predominantly um, letters, letters and phone call. They're, they're sort of tried and tested within the industry. Um, and the, when, when I say tested, I mean quite literally tested. And we can perhaps get onto that in, later. But um, yeah, so the second chapter, I guess, deals with the what I would call the intimacies um, of default. It goes into people's homes and tries to understand with some precision what it means to live a life of default. And what it effectively means is to have to confront these two technologies on an extremely regular basis. Um, Most mornings, well, I should say, first of all, that most um, in the UK, it's typical for defaulting debtors to owe debt to multiple Collectors, so a typical defaulting debtor may owe debts, let's say five or six different creditors. Each one of those creditors will, in a, in a situation of default, most likely be attempting to, to um, convince that debtor to repay them. And that's fact to repay them before they repay somebody else. So it's kind of race um, to get what in the industry is known as share of wallet. So you want to get as big a share of someone's wallet um, as you possibly can. Um, now, There are specific regulations in the UK that prevent collectors from quote-unquote harassing um, debtors, and that puts limits on, say, the amount of telephone calls that can be sent out, the amount of letters that can be sent out. But once you have this kind of interaction effect of different agencies contacting uh, a defaulting debtor, cumulatively, what that feels like and how that's experienced um, by a defaulting debtor is as a kind of ongoing bombardment um, of solicitations, an extremely bewildering bombardment of solicitations. The phone ringing at pretty much, well, potentially potentially uh, uh, from early in the morning uh, and, and until relatively late in the evening. It's not uncommon for collectors to start making telephone calls at around 8am, finish at around 8pm, um, sometimes later. Um, letters coming through the door demanding repayment mixed in with things like other outstanding bills, utility bills and so forth. Um, and this generates a particular state, um, something that I describe in the book as a state of um, anxious anticipation. So a kind of constant forward-looking um, bodily and emotional state, which, in which a debtor will be constantly um, expecting the next prompt Expecting the next solicitation, and what I kind of argue in that chapter is that this is not just a kind of byproduct of um, the situation of being in default. In many ways, this is uh, quite um, uh, deliberately created, uh, embodied state um, on the part of the debt collection industry. Um, This kind of intimate, anxious state acts as a as a real kind of opportunity for the collector that's looking to collect an outstanding debt um, what it will be doing is trying to sort of insert itself into this milieu um, and to try and make its approach heard above I guess the noise of these various different solicitations and the way it will do that is through a variety of of threats um, and and solicitations, not all of which are are, are forceful, um, and it's this kind of mixture of these threats that, that makes up the kind of, but um, carried out and delivered up both over the telephone and the litter that makes up the kind of vast majority of, of the work of the collection industry.
0: Yeah, because you, you talk about this um, in more detail in chapter three, where you you kind of um, describe the the idea of kind of a debtor being attached yeah. to their to their debt, and I wonder if you could say so what you mean by that yeah um and how that works because the the rest of the book i think it, it is is a very you know kind of interesting and detailed engagement with how this industry actually works yeah um yeah so
1: attachment i guess as I've already mentioned is a kind of key uh conceptual device i guess to think about the relational composition of this specific organization or um organizational account between organizations and, and individuals um What I try and do is look at attachment operating across a variety of, I guess you'd call them modalities. Um, So all markets involve attachment. Um, That is attempts by organisations to try and um, integrate themselves into our lives in such a way that we um, buy the things that they want us to buy, consume the services that we want them to to consume in certain way. And that's no different with, with credit. Um, when it comes to consumer credit, there are all kinds of um, devices that are designed, on the one hand, to kind of tempt us or, or to, to, to convince us that taking out credit is a good idea. These are kind of a potential attachment devices. And they're also a, in, and because of the fact that it, this, is, this is a financial product that sort of stretches out over time, this becomes particularly important. There are also a, a series of um, legal devices as well that effectively that attach us particularly firmly to consumer credit. So when we sign a consumer credit agreement, we are making an agreement to repay that agreement according to a particular schedule. This is an attachment device. This is, this is the kind of legal attachment which forms the basis of all um, contemporary credit and um, contracts and credit agreements. So that's kind of one modality of attachment, the kind of legal modality. But there are a range of other um, attachments um, which constitute our relationship to credit on the one hand, and on the other um, which credit itself can become attached to. So um, one might be for instance the the guilt that we might feel about yeah. not repaying. So the, the effective Yeah exactly. So that might so you might feel so well there is a legal obligation, fine, but then we might on top of that might be layered the kind of feeling that we should be repaying. <clears throat> as we all of us as we go through our daily life, we have a range of other attachments, we have attachments to our to our families, to our the places we live, to our friends and so forth. Um, one of the things I look at in the book, uh, in, the, in the second chapter, and to a degree in the third, is the way that these again become um, affordances, or for the collections industry. Well, certainly, what happens is you find what happens is that um, credit becomes mixed up, becomes entwined with some of these attachments. So this ostensibly sort of dyadic relationship between creditor and borrower becomes spread. Around a range of other parties, um, uh, ranging from other family members to to, to friends uh, and, to, and to a range of other potential advisors. So this, is of, this is kind of some of the ways that this attachment becomes um, distributed. Um, what I do in chapter three is look at um, the kind of long history of the the well, the beginnings, the way that the industry began to think about. Um, a bit more strategically about how to intersect with some of these um, domestic uh, attachments. Um, there's actually quite a nice, kind of like serendipitous point of connection here. Um, back in the early days um, of the consumer credit industry in the United States, um, upon situations of default, um, the uh, courts would often um, uh, issue a writ. A writ of attachment, a writ of body attachment, which effectively compels a debtor to appear before a court. So this is the kind of writ of body attachment, which provides quite a nice um, summary, I think, of what really is at stake here. Um, When you borrow, you are attached to your debt. The, the, The way that happens has changed over time. So historically, we had debtors' prisons, for instance. People could be compelled to... Here uh, in front of court, and potentially we could be incarcerated for for non-repayment. We've, um, in many most countries, not all, have abolied, abolished um, imprisonment for for um, for non-repayment of debt. However, in its place, a sequence, of, a, a series of techniques um, um, replaced the, these kind of juridical, these, these very forceful, forceful juridical um, approaches. I mean, there are course still um, other juridical approaches that are important nowadays, and this is what I document in chapter three. Um, where I talk about, I look at the way in which the debt collection industry, in particular in the US, which is in some senses the the testing ground for the majority of um, technologies of consumer credit, the industry in the 1940s and 1950s started to realise that it as an industry was perhaps more so than many other industries, and perhaps if not any other industry, was really concerned with um, negotiating this very intimate relationship that people had. Um, to their debt and, and and to their credit products. Um, back then, uh, as in the UK, as in many countries, um, collection of consumer credit meant people were effectively going to your door, knocking on knocking your, knocking your door, and um, and asking for repayment of a debt. Uh, this was often done by individuals, kind of working in small, in very small companies, often kind of uh, sole traders, effectively going to people's doors. Um, in industry literature in the 1940s and 1950s, what you start to find is this industry realizing that it was a business concerned explicitly with the management of emotions. Um, this was a real revelation to the industry at the time. They suddenly, And this, this is kind of coming in the context in psychology as a discipline was um, coming to the fore. Suddenly, this, the people in the, industry started, in the industry started talking to one another in terms of the management of debtor emotions. The industry started to categorize debtors in terms of their emotions. So you find kind of endless lists of um, debtor emotions in industry literature at the time. So was thought, well, a debtor has 10 typical emotions ranging from fear to anxiety to pride and so on and so forth. Um, and debt collectors started talking, talking about themselves as practical psychologists. Um, the, their business was really the, the management of some of these kind of intimate uh, encounters that they were having with debtors on their doorsteps. Um, that was all well and good um, but a lot of this was effectively just talking about what they were already doing using new language, it didn't really necessarily change that much about their day to day business in the 1960s however with the rise of and again in the US and the rise of automation uh, so this is particularly kind of punch card automation what this enabled the uh, debt collection industry to do was to start to really operationalise some of these concepts, so you had people talking about well can we devise an ideal um, letter trajectory? So a sequence of letters that are sent to uh, a defaulting letter that will really maximise this state of anxiety. And they talked about it as anxiety. They talked about it in those terms. Um, one particular experiment I talk about took place in the 1960s involving around 600,000 letters, so a huge number of letters, a huge, a huge sample, um, which effectively involved sending out this seven-letter sequence, or sorry, I should say, sending out sequences of letters and trying to and trying to understand exactly what prompts would lead to kind of optimal success financially, and how you could effectively manage over this course of a sequence of letters the, the, the this kind of anxious state of a debtor. You didn't want to push them too hard at the beginning. You kind of wanted to give the give you know, start gently, give them a kind of opportunity to repay at first, and then kind of save your your big guns until the until to the end of the process. Um, which is always this is this is something that's always been done within the collection industry, but it's always been done in a kind of Um, An ad hoc basis, there was some kind of rudimentary experimentation, but it was very, very, uh, very basic. But with the kind of rise of automation, with the ability to start to kind of customise letters quite simply via these kind of proto-forms of computerization, with the ability to start to tabulate the responses you were getting back, you could really start to do some kind of effective analytics on this. Um, And suddenly you have this this combination of the industry industry realising its work is, Essentially concerned with the management of, of, of affect, I would call it, with the emotion they would call it. Although I should say those two things are not um, necessarily not necessarily um, um, as equating directly to one another, mapping on a one to one basis. But anyway, I'll, I'll leave that to one side. Um, yeah, combined with these kind of these these, these processes, this kind of proto computerization really was marked the the point at which the industry started to become sophisticated and started to realise. Um, that it could really start to, with some precision, become mingle, sort of become entwined into people's daily lives, um, and that it could manage some of this kind of process of entwinement or process of attachment. And these kind of these these kind of experimental technologies, I guess, uh, the logic that informs them are very much the logics that inform the more sophisticated contemporary collections work today. Uh, in countries like the US, in countries like the UK with, with kind of um, uh, extensive consumer credit markets.
0: I suppose if that's a story of the rise of a social scientific society as, as much as it is mm-hmm. particular in- industry techniques, what's yes. the story of what actually goes on in a debt collection agency now? And, and yes. that's the subject of, of chapter four. And I, I wonder if you can maybe set that social scientific story in terms of what you know the kind of the working life is like in in one of these businesses
1: yeah so it's important to emphasize that i mean this is a diverse industry and um uh when you talk about some of these practices you can't you shouldn't shouldn't assume that they are happening in all companies and that's actually not it's not a defense so much as to say that a lot of these companies a lot of companies in uh the bit involved in the work of debt collection are quite unsophisticated and haven't necessarily adopted some of the more sophisticated techniques so if you if you were just to rely on industry literature which tends to talk about the latest techniques and so forth, you might get a slightly kind of skewed uh, understanding of what actually does go on in some of these companies I mean, there, there is still a kind of this kind of portion i think it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a shrinking portion but there is a, a portion who will just will just basically won't, won't use any of this kind of experimental techniques'll we'll just kind of have their tried and tested approaches um using kind of forms of um, lay expertise you could call them, to kind of inform their collections work. Um, but yeah, so I, I went into a number of collections. I think three different collections agencies spent some time um, observing what they were doing. Um, these are these were some of the kind of bigger collections companies here in the UK. Three of the biggest, actually, here in the UK. Um, two of which I think it's important to understand. There are, I guess, well, I should say there are. I guess three main components to the collections industry. One of those is. What you would call internal collections work. So, this is collections work that is being done in house by creditors themselves. Uh, Then there's the, so that is part, I would call that part of the debt collection industry, even though it's not often thought about um, as such. The other two parts are the contingency debt collection industry and the debt purchase industry. Uh, Debt purchase industry rose to prominence here in the UK in the late 90s and early 2000s. What well, that effect involved was um, companies buying debts wholesale from the original creditor. This is a model that was developed in, in the US, uh, I think mainly in the 90s, and it led to kind of boom in collections because suddenly creditors realised they had all this old debt that they weren't really doing much with and they could actually get some some money with. You know, they, get, they would sell this, at, you know, a couple of cents in the dollar um, to uh an external company but still that was that was that was that was great that gave them some extra capital and it could take some it takes this potential bad debt off their balance sheet which is very very important um so this model so this, this this is the debt purchase industry and this is i guess before the crisis it looked like the debt purchase industry was soon going to be all there was when it came to the to debt collection for particularly ironic reasons that didn't come to pass partly because what one of the things with the financial crisis um that happened was that this it was this was an industry that was itself itself huge reliant on debt um, to fund its operations, and they, they needed to borrow to to take out loans to to, to, to effectively buy some of this um, credit. With the with the credit crisis of two two thousand seven two thousand and eight, there was a huge contraction of credit business credit that actually put a real squeeze on their <laughs> operations. Ironically, uh, led to some of these companies effectively going out of business as well. And um, so no, that's debt purchase. Uh, and then the other, the other kind of more longstanding part of the external collection industry is contingency collections. What that effectively means uh, involves are companies working on commission. So the ownership of the debt will remain with the creditor, but they'll they'll collect um, debt on commission. And often, what a creditor will do, they'll have a number of different companies working on a particular sort of debt portfolio. And these companies are effectively in competition with one another to try and collect um, on this debt. And I yeah, won't get too much into detail about that. So um, I spent time at two contingency agencies and one at debt purchase industry. Um, I'd say that, I mean, one of one of the things, that the two, the saying, spending some time at two contingency agencies um, was helpful in highlighting is the way in which um, you have specialism within the collections industry. So, some companies specialise in collecting debt which um, is older, which is more uh, low margin. So, um, one of these, one of the agencies that I spent some time at, specialised in collecting debt uh, of, of that sort. Whereas another and uh, specialised in, in much de- debt that was much fresher. So, was, they they this is the kind of company that uh, a creditor would perhaps go to as the first port of call on a potentially uh, set of accounts with large outstanding credit balances, and. One of, the, one of the things you see is these, these companies um, tailor their approaches accordingly. So the kind of company that deals with older debt—I mean, to to, many, to to a large extent—the kind of the, the stereotype would be that sitting in a, in a collections call center would involve listening to people constantly shouting down the phone. Um, that isn't necessarily the case, and that's not necessary to say, not to say that from the debtor's point of view, this isn't experienced as a potentially very stressful conversation. It's just that the model, the business model of these some of these larger collection companies effectively involves really just pushing at the margins of very small debts. So just getting people to increase their payments from five pounds to ten pounds a month. Um, taking it and, and, and crucially keeping people repaying. So this is a kind of business that, that involves kind of the long-term management of some of these people who are who have been in default for, for months, for potentially years. And the best case scenario for some, for somebody like that, from, from the point of view of the the debt collection company, isn't well. The best case scenario for them is that their situation is going to change. They're gonna they're gonna get some inheritance. They're gonna find a job, although for many people that's a remote possibility, or certainly a job that pays them um, sufficient that can really make a, a big dent in their debts. Um, so, but but still, there's, there's a kind of waiting gain there. So, in some sense, you, what you want to do is keep you attached to their debts. Until something better comes along, and 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 so in some senses they they, they kind of operate in, to a degree like customer services, in part of their operations. But then, of course, another part of the operations does involve pushing for debt and they do for for, for for more money and they do that in quite sophisticated ways, in quite understated ways sometimes. Um, but but that that's kind of part of the business model. And and then the kind of, the kind of more, the, the agencies that deal with more the kind of fresher debt. That, that, then you start to see some of the more aggressive approaches. And I was able to listen to sort of data banks or databases of recorded telephone calls and I I talk I, I go through some of those telephone calls in, in the book to look at some of the techniques there, that I use Debt Purchase was particularly interesting because when you look at Debt Purchase what you have is a, a whole collections routine from beginning to end you can sort of see it over the whole course of a company so usually so historically this, this process would be divided up you'd have the kind of you'd have the original creditor the original credit card lender for instance and they would do some of the collections and they pass it to a, an external company, they might work here for a while, then they pass it to another external company. What the debt purchase industry has specialised in is bringing all of this stuff in house. Well, I should say, some debt purchasers actually buy debts and then they do some analytics and they read, they they sell some of the debts on to other companies and they kind of so their business is as sort a of kind of middleman. But for, the, 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 for some of the bigger debt purchases and the one I spent some time at, um, you can actually witness the whole collections routine from beginning to end. So they take they take over a debt pretty much pretty soon after it's gone into default and they manage it potentially up until they decide they can't collect on it anymore. Um, And then you can start to see some of these techniques that I was talking about were developed in the US in the 1960s really in action. You see um, analytics being used to to work out how exactly to to prioritise debtors. Um, You have in the collection company that I uh, was observing... You have the call centre force being divided into different teams, and I'll, I call them the, the green team, the orange team, and the red team. That's not their actual names, but different teams. And these deal with de- debtors at different parts of the uh, different sort of uh, different stages in the collection process. Um, so the green team, for instance, deals with people in a fairly light touch way, ranging from at the other end of the call centre, the red team, who deals with people who are much closer to legal action. Will be much more aggressive. Will be much more forceful in their dealings with debtors. So this is kind of one way in which you have this kind of process of the, the affective management um, or the strategic management of affective intensity, I call it in the book. This in turn is then coupled to some of this um, analytics. So a debt portfolio will be subject to some of this analytics. And um, then just to give an example, the green team has a particular routine which involves sending a number of letters to debtors. So that's three letters Each letter is in turn followed up up by a phone call, as a matter of course. But um, after the first letter, the the sort of gentle letter, what you find happening is that um, uh, debtors will then be be categorised according to uh, quite sophisticated analysis that's been done about them to try and determine what kind of debtor they are and what kinds of response will work best with them. Um, If they're deemed effectively low risk, so they don't have a huge outstanding balance. They the, they've shown themselves through a variety of metrics to be the kind of people that repay in a relatively straightforward manner, then perhaps they'll they'll stay with the green team. If not, however, they may sort of leapfrog the green team and go straight to one of other teams, straight potentially to the orange team, potentially straight um to the red team, to this, this pre-legal team. Um, and what that effectively allows the, the collections company to do is kind of act preemptively got to kind of manage manage debtors in a much more sophisticated way and be able to shuttle them around this uh these different sort of teams this, within that operate within this call center and you also had just as the final point on this you also had within this call center uh, uh something which has it's going to be been effectively outlawed now here in the the uk and that is you had another um uh team which effectively was posing as a separate organization um so it had a separate kind of identity. Letters were sent from us from a, from using different letterheads, and uh, this is what I call trading styles. And that I talk about them more in, in chapter five. But there, so what you what you have there is effectively the the, the debt purchaser would quote unquote pass out the and uh, once the debt got particularly far down the process would would pass it out to this quote unquote external company, which in fact was just sitting you know a few feet away from one of the other um, teams. And this, and this process was very common uh in, in the collection industry and something that the, the payday lender Wonga got into uh into, into trouble for recently although in some senses you could say that they were they were not unfairly victimized but it, was, it, it wasn't rec- it had not been recognized the 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 um uh, degree to, watch, to which this was an sort of endemic practice within the
0: within the collection industry
1: and uh, it has been for, for a while now although, as, as i say it has been it has changed recently
0: it, it, it's really interesting because that um, fourth chapter and, and the fifth chapter as well, the kind of the lifting the lid um, on how these organizations work, gives us a new perspective on, I suppose, the classic kind of here is, you know, a well built middle aged man who's going to, you know, knock at your door and yeah. ask you for your television. But it, it also points us towards the conclusion of the book, which tries to engage with ideas about, to an extent, kind of uh, escape. And resistance, Mm. and and as you call it, sort of market detachment. Yeah. And I I wonder, uh, as a, you know, kind of um, maybe slightly uh, optimistic note Mm. to to come to a conclusion on is is what does the book tell us about how we might do these things differently, how we might do kind of economy and society differently, uh, particularly in terms of um, the stressful, anxious, Mm. um, uh, effective elements um, of, of, of this part of the economy
1: well i guess there are t- two ways <laughs> i guess i'd answer that one is perhaps less optimistic uh and that is that i think what one of the things that are kind of what you could call a device inspired approach to the study um, of this particular market of the credit market i think shows is the degree to which this well is the degree to which what you could call opacity is built into um this particular kind of set of market encounters. Um, so transparency is obviously something that's seen as a kind of regulatory ideal um, in relation to consumer credit. Often politicians and, 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 and policy look at transparency as a way of solving market problems. More transparency leads in theory to, to better markets, more efficient markets, these are kind of better and fairer outcomes for everyone. Um, I, in a kind of pessimistic way, Find it almost impossible to imagine what a genuinely transparent credit market mm-hmm. would uh, mm-hmm. would would be. Particularly in terms of the techniques you've been talking. Particularly in terms actually. of the techniques I've been talking about. I mean, so when it comes to lending, some efforts we made for instance to make it more make it. I mean, there's, there's always a kind of there's always this this underlying capacity which isn't actually what I'm talking about. There's This underlying capacity with credit, as with all, as with many financial products, and that is the uncertainty of the future. So you can never you can never you can never you can never um, Confidently, you know, with, with, with any um, complete confidence predict um, the future. And that obviously is, 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 is an opacity which you are dealing with as a potential user of a financial product. Um, but, you know, to to give regulators their credit, they have taken some steps to address that in relation to borrowing. So, you know, when you, when you take out a credit card now, you'll have things like a table that will show you, you know, likely potential uh, different scenarios and how much you might have to repay on the different scenarios. And so, yeah, fair enough. That's kind of makes it uh, kind of increases transparency to a degree. But what I think is often missed when talking about credit is this, this kind of flip side to lending, which is collection. Uh, all lending, all credit that is lent, will ultimately have to be collected. Um, when you receive your credit statement every month in the post, that is a soft collections device. um, Okay, that's not particularly one that may not as long as, as long as you haven't borrowed too much, as long as you, you can afford to repay that, it may not cause you much in the way of anxiety, may not cause you much in the way of stress. You just you go on with the business, repaying, and all well and good. However, there's always going to be people, many people potentially, who are not going to be able to repay uh, their debts that, that they took out, and the, and the, the credit industry. This is a systemic part of the credit industry. Um, and for that reason, there's, there is the the debt collection industry, and this industry, I think, in some ways as, as, as has enabled the existence of the industry, and as in, in many ways enabled creditors to kind of outsource a lot of the ethically uh, problematic uh, aspects of consumer credit to to this kind of external en- industry, which is well, that you know, which is um, seen as the industry which deals with kind of aberrations um, of people's encounters with credit. However, these—it's it, not a bank that's act, acting unethically. It's not a bank that's yeah. pursuing you. It's not a
0: bank that's. Making even though, money. even though, in
1: fact, even though, in fact, because partly as a result of the, the kind of global economic crisis, um, default has become come to be seen as increasingly important to the to the work of creditors. So they actually have got far more sophisticated in themselves doing the work of collection. So in actual fact, many creditors now are actually quite sophisticated collectors mm-hmm. as well. Um, so yeah, so and so but yeah. The, but when it comes to collection, and the debt collection, I mean, opacity is absolutely central um, because because you can't lock up people now for default. Um, the industries had to effectively create a sequence, an almost bewildering array of techniques to to to, to and, solic- and 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 solicitations and prompts and devices which they use in their dealings with defaulters. And from the defaulters' point of view. Even somebody who may, I mean, say somebody had read my book, for instance, and they'd read all about the kind of uh, techniques that might be um, used against them. I would say that probably wouldn't necessarily really help them, ultimately, because they still are confronting the opacity of things like collections companies in the States um, who might, who randomly put a portion of uh, their uh, debt portfolio through the legal process, just to test the efficacy and the profitability of the legal process as compared to another set who who won 't be there 's absolutely no way of an individual knowing whether they're, the particular what the particular set of prompts they 're receiving are because these are prompts that uh, they should be read in a straightforward way or because they 're part of a kind of pr- a process of experimentation designed to, um, to 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 for the reasons that I talked about. Um, and then within individual letters, you, it's very hard then to know how to read the particular solicitations they receive. When, when they receive a threat, when they receive a threat or a potential solicitation, some collectors send out things like offers say, "Well, if you pay today, you'll get a discount off your debt." So these are quite positive solicitations. It's impossible to know whether um, you should wait. Should you wait until the next solicitation comes? Will you get a better offer in the future? These are the questions that it becomes impossible to resolve. So there is this deep opacity at the heart of the defaulter. Uh, collector encounter and therefore I'd say a deep opacity at the heart of, of credit which I think any which I think any kind of naive uh, call for transparency wouldn't really not do much to, to challenge so that's kind of more pessimistic though the more positive I guess, you no, know, we needs to ask what can we do to change, I mean I guess the question is who we is, I mean I'd say it's not, this is, when you look at the kind of most inspiring um, sites of resistance I think some of these dynamics um, uh, it comes not from analysts and from academics and from uh, policy makers, it comes from debtors themselves and I kind of end at uh, the very end of the book um, to looking at just one example um, of some of these sites of resistance which um, are these online debtor forums that have sprung up um, here in the UK so the Consumer Action uh, Group uh, forums um, also there are similar um, sites in the US um, where what you find, and they're very messy. These sites, you know, there's, uh, and there's many, lo- lots, lots, lots going on in these sites. But what you find in, in moments in these sites are, are acts of quite vocal uh, resistance and critique of 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 the the credit industry and and, pretend, and potentially the sort of broader socio economic um, <laughs> conditions
0: and relations that surround the credit industry. Yeah, that, that make credit. A sort of bedrock of how we do yeah. society, and, yeah. You know, make it impossible to avoid. And that's and right, and, I, and for think, some
1: sections. And, and I think crucially, what's really interesting about these kind of sites is that this is these are discussions that are happening in public. I mean, this obviously is the anonymity um, that these sites are for, but still, you have these discussions happening in public. Debtors are talking with other debtors about their debts, um, which is something that's fairly unprecedented in in the history uh, of of modern credit. Um, but I think almost kind of more important is you kind of have people um acting to support one another through the kind of process of managing managing default so people upload letters people ask for advice um people sort of say well you know i've got this phone call that's asked me to do this what should i do and this acts of this kind of um really as i say messy kind of bottom up i mean you don't have to idolize it too much but nonetheless kind of bottom up kind of response um to some of this these kind of these crucial problematics and um, of our age. And, you know, <laughs> alongside that, there are things like strike debt um, and the kind of rolling Jubilee campaigns, which I think are also really important. But in a way, I think that these kind of debtor-led forums perhaps might be kind of, well, I think they, they certainly provide as a novel way of understanding, I think, some of the the, 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 the problematics sort of, and some of the, kind of the ways in which detachment from uh, markets uh, is being
0: talked about and is being kind of negotiated by the debtors themselves. And is that the kind of thing you're working on in the future, or are you doing something completely different?
1: Um, so I've, I have worked um, with um, colleagues um, on these forums more. We've got some um, articles that we're uh, uh, working with, which are under review at the moment, which looks in more detail at some of these debtor forums. So um, John Montgomery and um, Liam Stanley, um, for instance. Um, so yes, to a degree, I'm also um, working on um, a piece of research that looks at new um, credit scoring uh, methodologies that are being deployed, in particular in the payday lending sector, uh, where what you see are is credit is increasing uh, is the set of online the set of online sites making credit decisions based. To a lesser extent, and to some extent, and in some cases, to no extent at all, um, less on people's credit scores, people's past um, histories with credit, and instead on an analysis of an extremely diverse set of data. Um, this includes data about um, people's, on, particularly, and this is the thing I've been looking at people's online behaviour. So in the UK, the most prominent site that uses such techniques is, is Wonga. Uh, in Europe, there's a company called Credit Tech that's launched sites in Poland, in Spain, in other Eastern European countries. Uh, credit Tech in particular claims that it doesn't even rely on, doesn't rely on credit scores at all. Wonga does use credit scores but as far as um, I've been able to determine, layers over credit scores is come with some of this kind of um, analysis and this uses some really peculiar data to try and, as a basis for, for assessing credit, this includes things like um, what browser an individual is using, uh, their screen resolution, uh, their IP address. Um, Credit Tech, this company I mentioned, the European company, they ask their users to um, install a Facebook app, where they actually get they're actually incentivised to do something. It's like a tens zloty discount on the Polish site. When you install this Facebook app, you have a permission request, which grants um, the which grants Credit Tech access into an almost bewildering array of data about you as an individual drawing on your on your facebook and uh, on, on your facebook account uh and i'm looking at, at this at this kind of nascent industry it's still a small energy but it is a global industry, and uh, looking to try and understand with, with more precision what techniques are being used and of course the politics of, of some of this thanks for listening
0: New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, David Bryan. On this episode, I was talking to Joe DeVille about lived economies, default consumer credit, debt collection, and the capture of